We have been in a series in the book of Ephesians, which is going to continue until Jesus comes back. Just kidding, it's not going to take that long. Um, Man, did Pastor Stephen give a word last week or what? Dang, man. Like, so uh, Stephen's not here today. I assume that he's probably watching online somewhere. But dude, Stephen, you did such a great job. And and for those of you who didn't know, uh, Pastor Stephen got kind of thrown in last minute because I made a big boo-boo. And I had a scheduling mishap, and I was going to be out of town, and so he, he stepped in. How many of you guys have ever been to summer camp? Okay, how many of you have ever been to summer camp as a leader? You know, summer camp as a, as a student is just like this wild, crazy, incredible time, and as a leader, it's this wild, crazy, incredible time, and then you come back and you want to die. So Pastor Stephen, we like, like he's leading our whole, you know, our whole, our whole youth ministry over there, and then he, you know, somehow found time to study a, you know, study a word, and man, he just nailed it, so great job, Pastor Stephen. And I have the great pleasure of continuing our uh, series in Ephesians this morning. If you are taking notes, I'd like you to please write down, we over me, we over me. Now, <clears throat> I don't know if anybody noticed, but... People seem really mad right now. You notice that? Like, people are a little bit upset these days. You know, there's probably a lot of different reasons, you know, for that. I mean, probably eight weeks of hanging out in your house with your family and not being able to go anywhere was, you know, that kind of stirs up a little seed of anger in there. Um, you know, there's, there's actually entire industries right now that are hemorrhaging that are hemorrhaging employees, not because they don't have a livable wage, but because there's no wage worth dealing with certain kinds of customers and certain businesses these days. Like the restaurant industry right now, for example, there, there's something like 95%, this is not, a, this, by the way, like a lot of like 95% of statistics are made up on the spot, okay? This isn't one of them. This is one of the 5%, okay? This is no joke. 95% of food care workers either during the shutdown or, uh, or, or after during the reopenings, have all considered strongly leaving their job. 95%. The overarching reason, you know, some of it was you know, the, the added, you know, added stress of COVID protocols and all that, but the primary reason that people were considering changing jobs is because people are jerks. Because the relatively small amount of, civ- like, of civilized behavior that most people actually have in their bodies has like, it, it's, it's, we have no reserves now. Like, we're just mean all the time. We're mad. We're mad that people, we're mad that people aren't following the expert's advice. Or, we're mad that they are following the expert's advice. We're mad that people aren't doing what politicians say. Or we're mad that people are doing what politicians say. We're mad that people aren't doing what their pastors say. Or we're mad that they are doing what their pastors say. Have you noticed that in every, it seems like every, every mental place that people are landing on, because this has been, a, this has been a, like a, a, a time in American history at the very least, where you have absolutely had to choose a side. And if you found yourself in the middle, you found yourself hated by both sides. Right? We're just, we're just mad. I'm becoming more and more convinced that social media, just like every other drug, 
I'm serious. Guys, I need you to hear me right now. I wish that we could honestly categorize social media as a drug because that's what it is. The more, the, the truth is, if you look throughout times in history where people have, uh, people have either found or created or used recreational drugs, you, you, you realize that there were times where almost every drug that we look at as being destructive or harmful was once used very small increments medicinally. How many of you guys knew that they used to put cocaine in Coca-Cola? That's why it's called Coca-Cola. You know what we used cocaine for back in the day? Pain relief. We used it for the same reason that most of us pop, you know, like the older you get, the more like your, your, your morning, like your morning like amount of ibuprofen becomes, right? Like you're not necessarily, like you don't necessarily have an ache, you're just anticipating one. <laughs> right? Like I don't have a headache yet, but I'm just anticipating I will have one later. Like the bottom line is, is that social media may have started out like every other drug. It may have started out like every other thing, but the reality is, is that it has absolutely become toxic for most people. Absolutely toxic. We are overloaded by people's personal information and politics, by the inner workings of their private theology or ideologies, but we don't know them. Let me put it to you this way. We have never had more information about people whilst simultaneously having so little relationship with the same people. The truth is that relationship brings context to information. How many of you have a family member you disagree with? But see, here's the thing, is that when you have relationship with people, you are willing to overlook things about their life or how they think that you don't like or disagree with. In essence, we have, because we have a window into people's personal ideologies and it's always available and it's always open, we prejudge people before we actually get introduced to them. How many of you have ever had like a Facebook fight and then you saw that person in church the next Sunday? Oh man, that one sobers you up a little bit, doesn't it? Relationship puts context to knowledge. Because we live in such a polarizing time, many of us, and I've seen some people in this room's Facebook, I don't know where I'm coming from. Listen, many of us believe that we have cornered the market when it comes to facts or truth, that what we have is dead set. And so what we tend to do is we tend to see people, we tend to see people that have a differing ideology or a differing viewpoint or even different types of theologies than we do, either suspiciously or maliciously, that they're out to do something to me. They're out to get me. And it's in this context that I believe that it's providential this morning, that the passages of Scripture that we're going to be studying. We're going to be in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 to 22. In a time where it's never been easier to go to war. We are a people of peace. Listen to this. We're going to start right here in verse 11. It says, so then, actually, you know, before, that, before I do that, I'm going to go back. I'm going to remind you first of, you know, Ephesians chapter 1, Paul's talking about, in the first half of, of this chapter, he's, he's telling you, he's reminding the believer everything that they have already in Christ. That if Jesus did nothing else for you, you already have more than enough in him. 
In the second part of the first chapter, Paul then talks about not only that he appreciates specifically the Ephesian believers, but because we also believe that the Bible was written for us, even though it wasn't written to us, what Paul is communicating by the impetus of the Holy Spirit is that you are appreciated by Jesus. That if you have a love for him and you have a love for his church, God himself appreciates you. And what he appreciates, he rewards. Then in the, 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 the beginning uh, section in, in Ephesians 2, Paul reminds the believer where you came from. That you weren't sort of dead. You weren't kind of dead. You weren't almost dead. You were dead in your trespasses. You know, I, I think I... I used Adrian as an example. I don't know. Sometimes I just like see people. I'm like, I'm just going to use Adrian as an example. But like, you know, if Adrian had a, you know, had a heart attack and, you know, they, we, we, we wheeled him into the emergency room and, and they, they fired up the paddles and they got him charged and then they just dropped him and said, okay, Adrian, go to work and walked out of the room. Is Adrian going to be able to raise himself from that, dead, from that, from that bed? No, of course he's not because a dead man cannot raise himself. You were dead. And you were made alive in Jesus, not by anything that you did, but by everything that he did. See, now here, as we, as we finish out chapter 2, we're, we're, moving, we're, moving, almost, we're moving on from the things that, that God has done for us. And we're moving in more to the identity of the church and, who, and how we're supposed to act, not just individually, but collectively together. So starting in verse 11, it says... Actually, you know what? I'm going to go to Ecclesiastes first. I'm sorry, guys. I'm bouncing all over the place. I want you to listen to this. It's Ecclesiastes 1.9. What has been is what will be, and what has been done will be done. There is nothing new under the sun. There is nothing new under the sun. Now, for those of you in the room like me who are students of history, you'll know that what we're going through right now might look a little different than what happened five, six, seven hundred years ago in another time of crisis. But I can tell you, there's nothing new under the sun. What has been done will be done. Can I tell you why? Because people exist. And without Jesus, the nature of people never changes. And so the same cycles of history repeat themselves because we're the same. We don't intrinsically change. Disunity, hubris, pride, and anger are nothing new. If it surprises you, you probably fell asleep a lot in history class. And like, I get it, man. I had some good history teachers and some bad ones, but here we go. All right, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11. We're going to start right here. It says, So then remember that at one time you were Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcised by... The circum by those called the circumcised, which is done in the flesh by human hands. At that time, you were without Christ, excluded from the citizenship of Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace, who made both groups one and tore down the dividing wall of hostility. In his flesh, he made of no effect the law consisting of commands expressed in regulations so that he might create in himself one new man from the two, resulting in peace. 
He did this so that he might reconcile both to God in one body through the cross by which he put the hostility to death. He came and proclaimed the good news of peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. In him, the whole building being put together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, there's that, there's that phrase again, in him, in him, in him, in him. In him, you are also being built together for God's dwelling in the Spirit. Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk a little bit about racism. But mostly I'm going to talk about the fact that our term racist or racism did not exist in the ancient world. Racism was their normative practice and experience. For example, the Greeks were probably one of the most prideful cultures in human history. Alexander the Great literally conquered the vast majority of the known world, not because, well, I mean, basically because Greeks believed that their culture was so far superior to everyone else's that you should essentially be glad that you got conquered. Because look how much better you are now. I mean, yeah, we killed a lot of you, but still, you're a lot better now. Conversely, the Jewish people, their, their, their national ideology, the, the, the way that they viewed themselves was that if you even sat with a Gentile, you became unclean. I mean, imagine somebody, I'm just really honest, imagine someone so racist that they couldn't even sit with a person of another skin color because, wow, you're going to defile me with your presence. I've got to tell somebody in the room that doesn't know this, the idea of cultural unity didn't just pop up. It came from Jesus. The concept of people coming together from every nation and tribe and tongue and becoming one in Him, that's, that, that was not a cultural concept. It is not something that would have just naturally developed without the Christian ethos. We actually, through Jesus... We actually have the ability to all sit in the same room, be, be, be different colors, come from different nations, and we don't judge each other for that. That was not the experience of the ancient world. Our global community is a lot more mature with how it interacts that we sometimes forget how great a miracle it was and is that when we have Christ, we have all things in common. Can I tell you what makes the church really special, whether you realize this or not? There is no other group in any society that gathers together with rich, poor, with you know, differing sets of ideologies, that is generally accepting of all types and different groups. The church is an incredibly unique, an incredibly unique machine, for lack of a better term, a body, a family. It, there's nothing like it on the face of the earth. And it's been like that for 2,000 years. Back when it wasn't actually all that popular to be mixing. The church was mixing. And the reason was, just come with me in the text. Because the church, by coming into Christ, 
stopped identifying with where they had come from and started identifying with where they are. See, this is not, Christianity is not a white man's religion. It's not a brown person's religion. It's not a black person's religion. It's a world religion. Can I tell you that the, if I was to describe to you the average Christian, like if we were to look at numbers across the world, the average Christian would be a 19-year-old girl with brown skin who's uneducated. Like there are far less white Christians than there are brown and black Christians all over the world. The reason I tell you this is because a lot of us, a lot of us have been hearing that you know, that, we, you know, that, that Christianity is a, is a white man's religion or it's an American religion. I can tell you, the places where Christianity is growing are places where there are not white people. And it's because Jesus doesn't appeal to your skin color. He appeals to the condition of your spirit. We have been taken out of every nation, tribe, and tongue and been made one in Christ. Sometimes when we... I think as, as Americans, we need to focus real quick on that phrase, taken out, to be brought in. You know, I've said this a number of times, and I guess I'll, I'll keep pounding this drum, I suppose. As beautiful a country as we have, we are not primarily Americans. We are primarily in Christ. That's, that's our identity. Our national identity is not nearly as important as our spiritual, familial identity as being in Christ. That's all really that matters. So if we've all been made one in Christ, why does it seem like we're not? You notice that? Like, I mean, obviously, we kind of expect, we expect people to be divided in culture, but, you know, at the same time, a lot of the people that you're seeing fight on Facebook, or you know, you're hearing about things in the news, about one leader attacking another leader, and you're just like, I thought we were supposed to be unified. What happened here? Well, I, I can tell you that there's a difference between position and practice. You know, I, I make this, uh, I've made this analogy before, and I'll, I'll probably continue to make it. If we're talking about righteousness, there's a difference between positional righteousness and practical righteousness, right? Positional righteousness is this. Imagine that you are driving on an L.A. freeway, and you're driving the wrong way as the rest of the traffic. Now, you might swerve a little bit, and you, know, you might miss a few cars, but ultimately, if you're driving in the wrong direction, you're going to get in a head-on collision. There's practically no world, like no possibility that you would ever be able to get out of that alive. And then, and then in the middle, between these lanes, there's a massive partition that your car simply cannot get over, which means that you are doomed to be driving in the wrong direction, no matter what you try to do. Positional righteousness is God picking up your car, taking it over the divide, and putting you into the right lane going the right way. So now I have positional righteousness. But how many of you realize, even with people driving on the right side of the road, there are a lot of bad drivers out there. See, the difference between positional and practical is practical is what happens when I get set in the right place. I still have the responsibility to drive responsibly. You see, we have been given positional unity in Jesus. He has made us one. He has torn down the dividing wall of hostility, and now unity is on me. So he gave me the position, now I'm responsible for the practice. 
Here's the big idea. Unity is not conformity. It's the elevation of major agreements and the relegation of minor disagreements. Anybody in here ever watched European football? I, I, you know, honestly, like, I never did either. Like, but I started watching this show that's kind of about, like, a European football club. And I didn't realize, okay, so we all know that if you, if you watch the NFL, there's always one team that kind of near the end of the season, they're not going to get in the playoffs, and so what do they do? They tank. They basically purposely lose so that they can have a higher draft pick, which makes watching these teams just terrible. It's bad football. It's bad entertainment. The European leagues don't actually do that. What they do is they have a system called relegation, where if you're in the, if you're, if you're the, they have two different leagues. There's the, there's the Premier League, then there's the Champions League. The Champions League is like the lower league. It's kind of like a minor league, sort of. Imagine the NFL, if the bottom two teams in the league, instead of getting a high draft pick, got booted down to the NCAA. That's relegation. Basically, the bottom two teams in the Premier League don't get a higher draft pick. They get to go down to the loser's bracket. So what I'm saying, when I'm, when I'm saying we need to relegate minor disagreements, what I'm saying is we need to take things out of the important category that are not actually all that important and relegate them into a place of lower authority. Because right now what we have is we have a whole group of people that are elevating minor doctrines and theologies to a place where we're willing to break relationship with brothers and sisters over something that really isn't all that important in the grand scheme of things. We are really good at avoiding big conversations and grinding out small ones. I mean, you know what I'm talking about? It's like, it's like the husband and wife who they know there's a big issue they got to deal with. But instead of dealing with the big issue, what do they deal with? Don't look at me like that. They always skirt the issue because they don't want to have the big talk. But eventually... It's the small talks that, 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 that grind you down to the point where you're not even open to having the big conversation. We draw major conclusions about people's motives, identity, and character based on some of the smallest observations. Don't believe me? I'll prove it to you. We tend to think, depending on which side of the aisle we're on, you see a person with a mask and you think, oh, they're living in fear. Or you see a person that's not wearing a mask and you say, wow, they're really selfish. How, how dare you not wear a mask? You see what we just did there, though? We made a broad, sweeping judgment over what someone chooses to put over their mouth or not. We don't have relationship. We have no context for their life. We make blanket judgments because it's easier to make a judgment than get to know somebody. It's just easier. And here's the thing, I'm not even talking about the world versus the church right now. I, 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 somebody in the room needs to hear me in this. I have absolutely no desire to be in unity with the world. None. I have no desire to be in unity with the world system. What I'm talking about is that these same battle lines that are being drawn in our culture are also being drawn in our churches. And it's putting us into a position... It's putting us into a position where 
we've become so disconnected from what made us one in the first place that we have equated often conservative ideology with kingdom theology or liberation theology with biblical Christianity. Listen, to be Christian is not to be conservative. It's to be in Christ. I feel like I need to say that again because we, we have a, a lot of times one of the main, one of the main mindsets that, that American Christians struggle with is that if you're Republican, if you're conservative, that means you're Christian. Let me, let me tell you something. Somebody in the room needs to really hear this. If you are Republican and you're conservative and you believe in God, that does not make you a Christian. You are not a Christian. Those who believe in Jesus, not just as a, as a whole, like, oh, I believe that God exists. Well, good for you. But if you are in Christ, that is what it means to be Christian. Conversely, if you don't know what liberation theology is, liberation theology is basically the Christian version of critical race theory. Liberation theology says that Jesus came primarily to free oppressed, like oppressed people. Is that true? I'm, yeah, but what are they oppressed by? Sin. Liberation theology doesn't say that. Any oppression is what Jesus came to free us from. And therefore, what happens is we get into this, 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 this way of living where you know, we, 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 it, we make everything about the oppressed and the oppressor as opposed to sin and righteousness. Yes, Jesus came to, to, to free the oppressed, but he came to free the oppressed from sin, not from insert whatever here. So how do we hold on to unity? How do we hold on to unity in a, in a time where it seems that because it's so easy to be divided, we just fall right into it? Number one is this. More theology, less news. More theology, less news. Listen, this is your bi-yearly, and maybe, maybe, maybe it's so bad, Hannah, right now that I need to make this like a bi-weekly reminder or something, right? This is your bi-yearly reminder that all news sites, whether they're mainstream or out of some dude's basement, all media is designed to sell you a product. They're not designed to give you the right information. They want to give you information with an agenda because what do they want? Influence. Because influence means money. Influence means advertisement. Influence means power. Don't for one second believe that there is an untainted news source in the United States of America. It does not exist. Everybody has an agenda, and that agenda is money. You know, parents in the room are going to really come with me on this one. How many of you have ever had a child come to you and say, Mom, Dad, can I have a soda? I'm thirsty. And then if you're, if you're a good parent, which I'm assuming all of you are, I'm not saying you don't give them a soda, okay? Like, I'm not going to be that guy. But like, what you do is, as a parent, you want to educate your children, right? So you tell them, listen, if you're thirsty, you don't need soda. That's just going to make you more thirsty. If you're thirsty, I'll give you water because that's actually going to quench your thirst. Let <laughs> me put it to you a different way. News media sites are the soda of information. We go to them looking for hope or light at the end of the tunnel, but we find ourselves even more starved for hope after we imbibe their brand. We're sold an us versus them mentality that actually puts many of our own spiritual families on either side of the field instead of side by side. 
you know, I was telling, uh, the Ericsons and us just went on a little camping trip, and um, I was telling Severin that I found myself becoming so angry at what I was reading, you know, on either social media or, you know, various news sites that I followed that I finally had to just delete it. Because the truth is, is that the kind of anger that I had wasn't righteous. It was impotent anger. It's an anger I can't do anything with. It's an anger I can't do anything about. I mean, I can't change the fact that, you know, that there, there's a, you know, new COVID narrative in New York. Like, what am I supposed to do about that? The only thing I can do, get mad. Listen, friend, can I just be honest with you? You are a busy person. You don't have time for impotent anger. So stop drinking from the sources that make you mad. Because it ain't helping anything, and it's certainly not helping you. Can I tell you something else? Can I tell you something else? They want you to get angry. Because the more angry you are, the more soda you're going to drink. Listen to this. This is Ephesians 4, verses 3 to 6. And I'm, I'm not going to hit this super hard because I want to not hit it hard right now so that I can hit it hard later because we're still in the same book. But I wanted to, I wanted to hit this because it really is... Ephesians 4, 3 to 6 is the boiled down version of Ephesians 2, 11 to 22. This is what he says. Paul says, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were, you were called to one hope, one hope. I'm going to say it again, one hope, one hope. When you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. We were called to one hope. One hope. And that hope is in Jesus. Friend, I got to tell you, whatever hope you're holding on to is a counterfeit hope. It will let you down. If your hope is in politics, you know, I, I said this a couple weeks ago when we were talking about appreciation, but I got to tell you, if you live by politics, you'll die by them. I'm not saying, I'm not saying, here's the thing. I think sometimes when, when, I, when I talk about, you know, politics and that kind of stuff, the, the general feel from people is that I'm telling you, don't get involved. Don't be concerned. I'm not saying that at all. I'm just saying, let's keep the minor things here and the bigger things here. Because I tell you, I'm sorry, on your deathbed, you know what you're not going to be thinking about? Who the president is. You're not. You're not going to be thinking about how much your country has changed. You're going to be wondering, where am I going now? Because that's a minor one. This is a major one. And here's the thing. The answer isn't just shutting off the news. It's adding something. The idea is not to starve yourself of soda and never drink anything else again. The idea is to substitute something that's actually more healthy. This is why I'm telling you, less news, yes, but if you don't add anything else into it, it's just going to be kind of boring. You're not going to learn anything. You're not going to be, be any different. Adding the study of God is an important factor, an important aspect in a believer's life. And I don't just mean reading the Bible. News outlets spew the doctrine of the world, but the church and its members should be trafficking in the doctrine of God. Here's the thing. Well, never mind. 
I'll hit that in another spot. We don't know enough about God, simply put. You know, I, I really doubt that there is a good husband or wife in this room that when you got married, you sat down with your spouse and said, I don't want to know another thing about you. I know enough. I'm okay. We're good. But see, the thing is, is that a lot of us, if I could just be quite frank, a lot of us did, pretty much did that with God. Where we know about the same amount of information or inspiration or relationship with God now as we did when we first got saved. Friend, I got to tell you, reading the Bible, as much as I'd like to say it's enough, is not enough. I'm not saying that we, we take any sort of you know, theological commentary and elevate it to the place of Scripture, but I'm telling you, we have got to know more about God than what we get in our devotionals. Here's why. How many of you believe that you perfectly interpret the Word of God? Good, good, okay. We're, we're appropriately aware of our limitations, right? But see, here's the thing. If we never actually study theology from people who have actually studied the Bible in crazy different, like, in, in a much deeper way than we do, then we'll always be shallow people that don't really know anything about God. We might be able to spew a few scriptures here and there, but how many of you realize, when we look right now at the church, everybody has their pet interpretation of scripture. We're using the same scriptures, but they mean different things to us. That's because a lot of us haven't bothered to actually study God at all. We just grab scriptures that make sense to us, and we run with it. Loving your neighbor means something entirely different to people today than what Jesus meant. Man, I get that it's easy to get news. I mean, like, if I hadn't turned my... Last, guys, last weekend, or two weekends ago... There's no joke. I got a phone call while I was preaching from a political candidate. Like, not actually from them, but you're like, basically, I got, I, I'm, I'm the, how do I say this? <laughs> I, I honestly believe that news media is the pornography of the mind. This is going to be a hard word for somebody. The way that I, that, that I talk to our, our youth about pornography and how to, how to keep yourself safe from it, is I say this, it's like, you know, back in my day, you had to go looking for pornography. Now, pornography comes looking for you. I could say the same thing about news media. I mean, it used to be that if you wanted the news, you, you know, got a subscription, somebody delivered to your house, like, you know, every other day or something. Now, if my phone was on, I'd, get, I'd, I'd be getting ding, breaking news, ding, breaking news, ding, breaking news. And we are so inundated we're so inundated with all of this garbage that's polluting our spirit, this political, like, spiritual junk food, like, that we have a hard time even focusing for a moment on Jesus. You know, I was talking with Sev. He, he said something to me that was really, it was, it was interesting that I had a little one-liner I wanted to add to it. He said, you know, I used to watch Fox News a lot. He's like, and part of the, part of the thing that, like, that kind of gripped me was that every once in a while, they do like a documentary or, you know, something about Jesus. And I was like, oh, man, it's so great. Like, there's a news outlet that actually talks about the Lord. He said, but the thing was, is that those stories anchored me more to Fox News than they did to Jesus. 
I didn't need those in my relationship with God, but they brought those out because they knew who they were selling to. And what I told them was, I said, yeah, it's like, it's like, yeah, I mean, you could buy a salad at Burger King, but the problem is, is that for, the, for every one item on their menu that's healthy for you, 95% of the menu will eventually kill you. We've got to stop. We've got to stop going to sources outside of what we actually have available. We've got to stop going to fast food sources for things that, that have to do with Jesus. Listen, I know that it's easy to go to news, but I've got to tell somebody, it does not take much to get great theological like material these days. Listen, some of the some of the best theologians in the world are producing free content all the time and it's you get it the exact same way you get all other content. It's just that most of us never do it. Because we think to ourselves, oh well theology that's just for really smart people. Or that's for scholars. No, it's for Christians. It's for believers. You need to know who God is. Not just in your daily devotional, not just in Jesus' calling, not just in purpose-driven life. You have got to know more about God than you know now, because the more you know about God, the more He will change your perspective. You need to get some water and stop drinking the soda. Stop getting to know your culture so much and get to know your God. I'm going to give you four pretty good sources for... Seriously, you should write this down. Like, if you are not already listening to theology podcasts or, like, seriously, write these down. This is a practical step you can take right now for your spiritual education, okay? First one is Remnant Radio. Remnant Radio. It's great content. These guys are going through really deep theological issues, but they're doing it in layman's terms. Like, they're not trying to impress you with their language. They're trying to get information into your spirit, the second one, ask N.T. Wright, right? It's like N-T-W-R-I-G-H-T. Ask N.T. Wright anything. Tom Wright is probably the foremost theologian in the world, and this podcast is literally one where he takes questions from everyday people and answers them. Another one is, uh, is, is what I call kind of the, the Netflix of theology, um, it's a subscription service. It's like $14 a month, but it's called Theos U. And basically, it literally is the Netflix of theology. They're taking all sorts of incredible, I mean, everything from what is salvation to soteriology to eschatology, and they're, they're, they're basically doing short videos so that you don't have to spend six hours in one sitting getting theological training. But at your leisure, with your spare time when you're not binging Netflix... You can, sorry, I hit a little hard on that one. But in, in, in your free time, basically, you're getting top-notch theological training at layman's level terms. And I also, this isn't like a plug for my, my own thing. I have a podcast called Faith Simplified, where I go through a lot of different aspects of our faith. And I've been terrible at uploading stuff, but since I'm telling you publicly to go and subscribe to it, I will absolutely start loading more material. So... Moving right along, number two, focus on majors, forgive minors. Focus on majors, excuse me, forgive minors, sorry, it was wrong in the back. Okay, so I've given this particular analogy quite a lot, but I'm going to do it anyway, again, because a lot of you are new, and 
You know, probably I'll, I'll keep giving this analogy until like I'm like 65 and all you guys are like, yeah, we know, man. We've heard it like a hundred times. But when we talk about theology, I liken it to a map. I liken it to like, like, like a map of countries. Now, when you were, if you were to look at a map, what you'd see is you'd, you'd see three different distinct lines in every state. Or I should say in every state and country. What you find is you find there'd be county lines, state lines, and eventually a national boundary. How many of you this morning came from Ponderay County? You drove from Ponderay County in. Anybody? Now, this is probably a loaded question right now, but did you really effectively notice a difference the moment you crossed the border from Washington to Idaho? Now, in, your, in our minds, we're like, Idaho's the real land of the free these days, you know? But, um, but at the same time, like, going from one state to another, you recognize that there's a, that there's a whole different system of authority, right? But at the same time, you're not met at the border by guys with guns. Like, you're, they're not asking for your papers when you cross over the Old Town Bridge, right? Now, for those of you who came, let's say, from Boundary County this morning, when you went from Boundary County to Bonner County, you probably didn't even, like, didn't even, like, go into your mind that you had crossed the county line. Because even though there actually is an important distinction between the two, it's just a county. But then... There's the line on the map that separates the U.S. from Canada, or the U.S. from Mexico. See, when you, when you, go, to, when you go to cross into Canada, like you realize, I'm going to have to have my, 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 as my dad would say, my poop in a group. Like, I'm going to have to have my, you know, I have to have my, my, uh, my passport. I'm going to have to make sure that there's no illicit fruit I don't know why. I don't know what the deal is with, like, no fruit beyond this point. It's, like, easy. <laughs> What's really funny, actually, so we're talking about state lines. Actually, it was funny. I went down to, I was, I was driving down to Northern California, and as we crossed the border from Oregon to California, there was a border where they specifically were searching for illicit fruit. And I'm like, man, is there, like, a fruit epidemic in Washington that I don't know about? These, these guys are really serious about their fruit. But now I want you to imagine our faith like that, like a country. If we were to look at the, at the doctrines that people hold, a lot of us, what we have is we are fighting over county lines because we have forgotten that we have an actual enemy. I'm not saying Canada is our enemy, okay? Just calm down. I'm saying that we have forgotten that there's a whole other nation on the border that is, looks totally different from us. So what we're talking about, let me, let me just run this back. So we're going to go to the, talking about the, the Nicene Creed, because this is the dividing line between Christian and not Christian. The dividing line between Christian or not is not your pet theology. It is the Nicene Creed. So for example, when we label, you know, if we label a, a, a particular group that says that Jesus was one of many sons of God, that he wasn't begotten, he was created. In that moment, because of what we're going to read here in the Nicene Creed, I'm going to call that a cult. That's no longer Christian. That's something entirely else. That's Canada to the U.S. We might kind of look the same, but we are not the same. I'm actually going to read for you the Nicene Creed. So the Nicene Creed was developed in 325 A.D., at, incidentally, the Council of Nicaea. The Council of Nicaea was, was brought together because of heresy within the church. 
Basically, the, the most prominent church fathers and leaders gathered together to do two things. The first was because of how many false doctrines and how many heresies were running rampant within the church, they decided that we need to look at the last 300 years of church history and look at the things that the apostles agreed on, that the fathers agreed on, and that is typically what we understand about the nature of God. And we need to create a boiled down version of that material so that we can know who we are and who we're not. Second thing they did was they canonized the, the Bible. And, and there's, a, there's been a recent, uh, a recent criticism of the Council of Nicaea that was like, well, it's just a bunch of guys that all got together and decided what books they wanted in the Bible. No. The Council of Nicaea gathered together the books that had always, in the past 300 years, had been used as inspired scripture and said, this is all there is. This is all there has been. This is all there ever will be. But here's the creed. It says, we believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of the same essence as the Father, through him all things were made. For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven, he became incarnate by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary, and was made human. He was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. The third day he rose according to the scriptures. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again with glory to judge the living and the dead. His kingdom will never end. And we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life. He proceeds from the Father and the Son, and with the Father and Son is worshipped and glorified. He spoke through the prophets. We believe in one holy Catholic, low, low, lowercase c, not uppercase c. Catholic simply means universal. One holy Catholic and apostolic church. We affirm one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look forward to the resurrection of the dead and to life in the world to come. Amen. That's the border between the U.S. and Canada. You know what's not in there? Your opinion on mass. Your opinion on pre-trib or post-trib, mid-trib, a-trib. Now, am I saying that these things aren't important at all? No, I'm not saying they're not important at all. I'm saying that we have been fighting over so many county lines, we've got to stop. You know what else isn't in there? Baptism of the Holy Spirit. Even though I believe in the baptism of the Holy Spirit, I've got to stop fighting people over it. Because ultimately, again, when we think about family, how many of you have to not talk about certain things at the Thanksgiving table? Right? And like, there's always crazy Uncle Larry that wants to go there, right? He wants to, he wants to dredge that thing up. But, but the thing, here's the thing, and, and, and I'm convinced of this. I'm convinced that even though we recognize we have been adopted into a spiritual family, we have forgotten that what that means is that your blood family is actually less important theologically than your spiritual family is. Now, I'm not saying, again, you know, throw your family under the bus. What I'm saying is the things that you do to keep unity within a family, man, some of you go to a lot of effort. Am I right? Some of us go to no effort when it comes to unity in the body. We are ready to judge. We're ready to throw stones. 
There's a reason why the Nicene Creed is fairly open. It's because there's a lot of stuff that doesn't really matter all that much. Let me, let me throw this a different way. How many of you know that if you never get raptured and you still go to heaven, the rapture doesn't matter to you? Right? Like, how many of you know that it really makes no difference? It really makes no difference if you choose God or he chooses you. Like, one way or another, if you get there, it no longer matters to you. That's the whole point of the Nicene Creed, is that the thing that matters most and what connects us together is the thing that matters most. It's not, see, the Nicene Creed isn't about you. It's about him. Does that make sense? We are really good at majoring on minors because it's easy to pick at the phrase of someone's life. But when we really put weight on the things that matter most, we find that it's okay to have a plurality of differing views on all sorts of things as long as the main things stay true to our ancient heritage. All right, number three, and we're, we're winding this up. Number three, remember our history. Listen. <laughs> hmm. Does everybody know that Americans didn't invent Christianity? Right? Okay. Americans didn't invent Christianity. Jesus did. The apostles, through the Holy Spirit, invented Christianity. See, sometimes because we are in what we would call the non-denominational evangelical church or whatever you want to label yourself as, we can forget that we have an ancient history. That we have, we have a body of historical evidence that shows us when God has come through for us. See, sometimes what we do is we read the Old Testament. We see the things that, you know, we, see, we see how God was so faithful to the Israelites even though they weren't faithful to him. And how many times he rescued them out of the hands of Midian and the hands of Egypt and the hands of Moab and the hands of whoever else. But sometimes we forget that the Old Testament is actually a type and shadow of the history that the church actually has had for the last 2,000 years with the faithfulness of God. In times like this, we can forget that times like this have happened a lot. Can I tell you some of the things that God has pulled us through? We survived the sack of Rome in 395. We survived the Black Death in the 1300s. We survived the Thirty Years' War at the onset of the Reformation. We survived the Spanish Inquisition, something that we did to ourselves. We outlasted Nero. We outlasted Claudius. We outlasted Caligula. We outlasted Hitler. We outlasted Stalin. We outlasted every cultural pushback in every age for the last 2,000 years and never stopped pushing forward. Man, somebody needs to know that this too will pass. If God did it then, He'll do it again. If he was faithful then, he'll be faithful now. I'm not worried because I know my history. Man, some of you guys fell asleep in history class. Man, come on, come with me for a moment. God is faithful. You see, when I think about my testimony, my testimony is not just what God has done for me personally. Like, I could talk about that all day, but when I look at the, at the scope of what God has done for 2,000 years, God has proven himself faithful to his church, even when we didn't deserve being faithful to, even when we messed up doctrine, even when we screwed up scripture, even when we did all the things that we did, God never said, you know what, 
I'm done with you guys. Because Jesus is a better husband than that. Because he doesn't give up on his bride no matter what. See, though we may be in the midst of a great shaking, I will remember not only the times that God has been faithful to me, but to us corporately. Mine is not just the history of one man. It's the history of every man, woman, and child whoever says yes to Jesus. See, my, my testimony is a new one, but it's an ancient one. It's a new one, but it's an old one. See, I can look at the faithfulness of God through every generation and say, he hasn't given up yet. Here's where we're finishing up. I'm going to take you to Daniel chapter 2. I'm, I'm a little over time, so I'm not going to read the whole grip. Why don't you just bring me down to, um, um, let's call it verse 44. So Daniel, I'm going to set this, this, this story up real quick. Nebuchadnezzar was the king of, uh, the king of Babylon. And, and one of the craziest things about Nebuchadnezzar is his story of conversion. Like, you ever thought it was crazy that a heathen king got a chapter in the Bible? Like he actually wrote, Nebuchadnezzar himself wrote a chapter of the Bible. And it was to write about the fact that he finally realized that God was who he said he was. But in chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar gets a vision from God. And it's actually what we would call an eschatological vision about the end, the end things. He didn't give it to Daniel, which would have been pretty natural. I mean, Daniel had a lot of other visions throughout Daniel. He gave it to Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar was admittedly a little unstable. A little unstable. And what happened was he brought all of his sorcerers and his mediums and his you know, interpreters. And he said, I had a dream that's of divine significance. And each one of them was like, all right, man, hit us with it. Let's go. And he said, no, I need to know that this interpretation is from God. And so what we're going to do is you're going to tell me my dream and then interpret it. And if you don't, I'm going to kill everyone. And of course, each one of them is, you know, like, nobody can do this, my guy. And so Nebuchadnezzar, true to his word, decided he was going to kill all of his mediums and sorcerers. And so Daniel, when they get to him, Daniel says, hey, let, let, me, let me do this. So he goes to Nebuchadnezzar and he gives him, he, he reads back to him the vision that Nebuchadnezzar had, and then he interprets it for him. And this is the final one. It says, your majesty, as you were watching suddenly, oh wait, hang on, back to 44. So this is the final, the final piece of this, uh, of this interpretation. He says, in the days of those kings, the God of the heavens will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, and this kingdom will not be left to another people. It will crush all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, but will itself endure forever. You saw a stone break off from the mountain without a hand touching it, and it crushed the iron, bronze, fired clay, silver, and gold. The great God has told you what will happen in the future. The dream is certain, and its interpretation reliable. In the ESV, it actually says the dream is certain, and its interpretation sure. What Daniel was reading back, what he was interpreting to Nebuchadnezzar, is that someday the, the great kingdoms of men will fall because the kingdom of God has come. And it will never shrink. It'll never fall back. It'll never retreat. No matter what's happening, God will grow it. God will do it. God will increase it. So I got to tell somebody in the room who's afraid of what the future looks like. Friend, I can tell you the future is bright because we are a part of an advancing kingdom that will not and has never stopped. 
Listen, I know it's really difficult right now to be unified. Maybe I'm going to go back to Ephesians chapter 4 here for a minute. It says, make every effort. Make every effort to maintain, to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Make every effort. Man, this is my question to you today. What is your effort level? What's your effort level when it comes to maintaining the bond of unity in the body of Christ? What's my effort level? You know, like I said, I, this, is not to, this is not in any way to, to puff me up or anything like that, but I realized my weakness was social media. Because like I said earlier, it's a lot easier to judge people you don't know. Get mad about things you can't do anything about. My effort was to make less effort. Just do less. What's your effort? What's your effort? If you're struggling with impotent anger, can I ask, what's the source of it? And is it worth having? Make every effort. Come on, let's pray this morning. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the bond of peace that exists in your church. I thank you that you've given it to us so we can steward it. How blessed it is when brothers dwell together in unity. I thank you that we have a choice. We have a choice that we can maintain the bond of unity. It's not impossible. Sometimes it's a little difficult, but it's so important. It's so important to hold on to everything that you've given us, everything that you bought for us. You didn't just give us peace, you bought us peace. That you tore down the dividing line of hostility. God, help us be a people who never set it back up. God, help us be a people who don't let things or ideas come between us any longer. Help us be people who see each other for what we have most in common, not what we have, not what we disagree about most. I'm going to ask this one question today. Do you know Jesus? And friend, if you're tired of being angry all the time, if you're tired of what's going on in your head, if you're tired of what's going on in your heart, I can tell you, I can tell you that there is a foundation that you can build your life on that'll never shake no matter what kind of season we're in. And it's Jesus. Is there anybody in the house today that you've never said yes to Jesus or maybe you've said yes to him a long time ago and you walked away from him and you realize today's the day that you want to come home? I'm not just talking about coming back to church. I'm talking about coming home to the family. If that's you today and you've never said yes to Jesus or today's your day to come home, I'd like you to raise your hand. I want to pray for you. Is there anybody in the house today that today is that day for you? Thank you, Jesus. God, we thank you this morning for who you are and all you've done. We are so grateful to be your house that you're building. We give you all the praise and glory. It's in your name we pray. Amen.